my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Hey, it's Radio Mysterioso. It's uh Greg here again, uh, and as promised this week, we have the international director of the Mutual UFO Network, James Carrion. James became the director, international director of MUFON in 2006, right? That's right. I, I took over when uh, John Schuessler retired. That's right. And Schuessler's still on the board, is he not? He still is. And uh, I was re- excited to have uh, James come on because when I first heard he was on, uh, basically from um, Friends and also from the Tim Benall show uh, from December of 2006, um, what I heard was that uh, he was going to change things, uh, change the face of the organization, or at least the way they did things, and look into uh, uh, new ways to uh, research the UFO phenomenon. And uh, it appears that they're doing that, and I wanted to get it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Also, he's going to be at uh, the Roswell Convention, right? Uh, uh, this coming in two weeks, in July, what is it, 6th, 7th? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, well, I'm going to be down the July 1st or the 6th. Uh, the official dates are uh, over the July 4th uh, weekend. Uh, so I think it's actually 4th through the 7th. Uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's that long weekend, first weekend in July. Right, and also, of course, uh, being the uh, international director, he will be uh, hosting and presenting at the uh, MUFON convention in uh, on in uh, Denver on August sixth through 9th. That's correct. Those are the, those are the correct dates for the symposium. Right. So if if you're uh, thinking about it, get out there. I've looked at the schedule. There looks like there's, you know, even in the speaker schedule, there's different stuff going on in MUFON than you people listening to this show that would traditionally think. Um, another thing that interested me in, in, in your bio, bio, James, was that you were in uh, Army Intelligence as a Russian language uh, specialist, right? That's correct. Uh, I did uh, some of intelligence work uh, indirectly for the National Security Agency. That's right. You know what? I can be boring here, and I, maybe I might because there, maybe you can get a little more detail than you usually find on the websites and all that. Uh, and I asked this of anybody I've talked to for the first time: uh, What was the genesis of your interest? And I know you get this on every show, but uh, that you're on. But what got you interested in the first place? I, I know you grew up in Puerto Rico, and that's kind of a hotbed for paranormal stuff. Yeah, actually, I've been interested pretty much all my life. It started uh, around age eleven. Uh, actually, uh, my mom subscribed to all the tabloid publications, 
So, um, you know, I used to sit there and clip out all the front page headlines of uh, alien and saucer stories and UFOs, and uh, that, that's really when it all got started. That's that's another thing about this show. If you want to go on at length, that's fine. There's no soundbite stuff on Radio Mysterio. So, so it, was there a precipitating incident, or it was you were just around it all the time? So no, no, there was no uh, precipitating event. Uh, just uh, piqued my interest. Um, I've always been interested in anything that uh, has that's you know a mystery of some sort. Uh, so this just happened to be one of those mysteries that uh, caught my attention early on in life. Uh, and I sort of stuck with it, and um, when I actually moved to Colorado in 96 is when I first found out about MUFON, and so I joined the organization. What made you want to join MUFON? Did you think it was, well, I'll let you answer. Well, I think that, you know, I'd been exposed to a couple of different groups of folks that were interested in the subject. Uh, they were a little too esoteric and new age for my liking, and, and uh well, I, I'm truly a skeptic at heart. So once I found out there was such an organization that, uh, you know, had that same skeptic outlook in terms of let's, let's take, a, take a look at the subject from a scientific viewpoint, uh, you know, I, I joined right up. That's exactly what I was looking for. They've always prided themselves in having a scientific viewpoint and uh, way of looking at the subject. What I always thought about MUFON after I had been a member for a while, but then after a while I, I thought that, they were concentrating too much on the extraterrestrial hypothesis, and that kind of get, got my interest to wane. Did you ever have that kind of problem with them, or you 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 think the ST, the ETH is it? No, no. The the whole issue of uh, what's behind this phenomena, uh, there's no one hypothesis that's gonna that's gonna explain all the activity and all the experiences we're seeing. Uh, when I first joined, actually, when I first uh, took over as international director. Uh, the very first thing I did was actually sponsor a workshop. Uh, we did a meeting of the minds in Fort Collins, Colorado, in early spring of 2007, uh, where we had uh, you know Stan Friedman and Rich Dolan and Bob Wood and some of the big minds in, in the field, and we basically got together and said, okay, uh, what are the what are the hypotheses out there that are viable, and how can we engage mainstream science uh, into looking at the subject? So, of course, ETH uh, was one that we looked at, but wasn't the only one. Um, and, and we knew that this was a tough subject because uh, for a hypothesis to be viable, um, it has to be falsifiable. Uh, and, and that's one of the problems with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Uh, there's no way you can prove that they're here if there's, a, if there's no way you can disprove they're here. Um, so I think it's probably why mainstream science shies away from uh, this field in general, because most people equate the word UFO with ETH, and, and really we're trying to look for a strategy to try to overcome that. I've talked about this too and talked about it with some of the guests, that the way science is configured now, it is uh, not conducive to studying something that you can't get in a lab, and as you say, cannot be put tested against a falsifiable hypothesis. I mean, it can't be falsifiable because you, can't, you have no control over it. You can't get it in a lab. Correct, exactly. And actually, one of the interesting things that came out of that workshop, uh, Greg, was that we, we actually came up with a hypothesis that we thought we could present to mainstream science, and uh, they could actually take and run with it. And, and basically, the hypothesis was that uh, uh, those UFOs that have been observed that are of obvious manufacture, of a structured craft, uh, they're not the balls of light or amorphous, uh, uh, you know, bodies that fly through the atmosphere, you can actually see some 
something physical to it, um, that they're man-made objects. And, and most people that are in the field will go, well, that's a, that's a lousy hypothesis. But in reality, it's actually a good approach because one, when you can present a hypothesis like that to mainstream science, that's something they can actually run with. They can actually go in and, and take a look at the UFO sightings and compare it to the technology of the time and whether it's possible for structured craft to be doing the maneuvers that people have been observing. And the goal of actually trying to engage mainstream science with this uh, ETH hypothesis is really to stimulate intellectual curiosity. If you right. look at some of the big names in science who have put their names behind the UFO, uh, behind UFO research, uh, they really would have never touched it early in their career, but as soon as they they started looking at the subject, it sort of grabbed them, and it kick-started their, their, their veracity enough to say, okay, I, I, need to, I need to explore this. And I think that's what science is really about. It's, uh, you know, those things that are a mystery, trying to uncover what that mystery is. In your uh, encouragement of mainstream science, did you refer anybody to Paul Hill's book? Yes, absolutely. We actually, uh, we, that's one of the books we actually looked at um, when we were, when we were um, putting together a bibliography of, of research material and reference material. Um, and what we're doing right now is we're actually trying to get a major university to sponsor a, a scientific symposium on UFOs and, and to see you know, whether or not uh, mainstream science will show up. Uh, so we're actually actively working on that. We have a director of research. His name is Robert Powell. Uh, he's been actively pursuing that. We're hoping to have some good news here uh, shortly. That'd be great. Who do you think would show up to such a thing? I, I, I wonder if anybody that anybody knows about. I, w I would figure that it would be people who are curious who do not want their names um, publicized, but they're, they're, you know, they're scientists, they're curious, and they want to look into a mystery. Yes, and I think actually we're at a better point in, in, in uh, time in terms of uh, scientific involvement or, or uh, scientific, uh, scientists getting involved just because of the explosion of information about what we know is possible out there in the universe and with all these extrasolar planets being discovered. Uh, and, and we know that life can thrive in the most inhospitable places on Earth um, and that we're not a, you know, we're not a unique uh, occurrence in the universe. So I think those folks that are, have their minds have been open up to those possibilities, um, you know, may, may be attracted to, to attending the symposium. If anything, just to gain a, a different perspective. What kind of people do you think would show up? Well, you know, what people from what disciplines? Do you do you know anybody now that would be interested in? You obviously must know know some sort of credentialed scientist that would be interested in attending such a thing. Well, I I, I definitely think uh, you know folks that. Uh, are working in universities in, in, in conjunction with NASA, pro, uh, with NASA projects, you know, exobiologists, uh, astronomers, um, you know, anybody who has an interest in, in what, what, what's happening outside of our solar system, uh, I think would, uh, would be a possible entity. Yeah, you would think, you know, I've got this thing that the ETH is not the only thing, but it's, you, like you said, you have to kind of use the honey to catch the flies. To, to bring exactly. them in and, you know, get them interested to talk about this kind of thing and then maybe talk to another colleague that's more uh, interested in a, a many-universe model or a different model of reality than most people are used to and looking at it from that angle, such as the uh, inflation theory um, paper that was written by uh, Hal Putoff, Bruce Maccabee, and a couple other people, which I'm sure you're aware of. Right, Exactly. You know, actually, I think in conjunction, I mean, I'm not sure how we would structure the symposium uh, itself, but I think in conjunction with uh, these workshops on 
uh, you know, trying to fit the ETH into uh, a UFO context um, is also just the possibility of, uh, you know, based on some of the research I'm doing, that there's some some real uh, early history around the Cold War and having Cold War historians that would be interested in knowing what that is because they may have not explored it in depth. So I'm not sure we could put that all together in, in one big scientific symposium, but uh, just like the phenomena, there's, there's, there really is no one explanation, not, no one hypothesis, I think, that uh, all the different experiences people are having related to this field uh, will fit under. Yeah, it doesn't really. I mean, the ETH um, Valet said a long time ago that the, the uh, hypothesis doesn't fit the evidence. Exactly. Not all of it, anyway. And, and maybe it's because uh, oftentimes we want to pigeonhole the evidence and, and rather than uh, categorize it and, and consider that the spectrum of activity is so wide and therefore the, the spectrum of explanations may just be, may be just as wide. Uh, so there's not just one possible, one possible hypothesis, there may be a number of them. Actually, Heineck said this. He said that the uh, revelation of whatever it is that UFOs represent are, or whatever they are, would change science, not, not the other way around. Science would not discover what it was, but the acceptance of it as a real phenomenon that we had to deal with would change the way that science deals with things, with, with some things. Exactly. And uh, I try, you know, people should keep that in mind, and it sounds like you are and the people that you're dealing with, and that's... That's uh, exciting to me because it, most people I know, when they think of MUFON, at least in the years before the you know before the turn of the century, it was uh, a bunch of old people clinging to the ETH, which it obviously isn't anymore, which is great. Right, there, and, and we're hoping that, that we present a different uh, image, uh, especially younger folks who want to join this quest. And and I think that um, you know we really have to we really have to go back to the to the basics here, which is uh, you know. Take a scientific look at this. Take a scientific approach. Uh, have an open mind. Uh, oftentimes, we're, we're accused of being uh, either believers or debunkers, uh, which are really at opposite opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of belief. And, and we really like to stay in the middle, which is to, to be the skeptic, open-minded folks. Yeah, it's um, it, it's funny. It, it, yeah, they're opposite ends of the exact same. They're both believers. People that cling to the to the theory that there's people from other planets, and you know, uh, as opposed to people say there's no evidence for it, everybody's mistaken. You know, the the, the debunking, or as I call it, the fundamentalist skeptic view. Exactly. Now, I, I can tell you one thing, Greg, that I've observed uh, in the time I've been in Mufon, especially as an international director, is um, I absolutely believe that there is. Uh, an active interest on the part of certain elements within the government uh, in this subject. And I'm not really sure exactly why uh, there could be national security implications for why they're interested. But, but I do, I think I've sort of come to a fundamental conclusion about uh, how we're going to make progress in understanding the phenomena. And that is we, we have to eliminate the government wild card in this. Um, but it's, it's obvious to me, uh, based on research I've done and, and just talking with other folks within the field, that there are folks who have meddled in this subject for their own purposes for way too long, and they've muddied the waters, and, and they've tried to obscure the truth. And, and we're going to have a difficult time ever coming to an understanding of this as long as that, as long as that meddling continues. Uh, and some want to say that's conspiracy theory. 
Uh, but I have to say it's a reality. It's, it's, it's just way too obvious to me, especially being in this position. Yeah, you know what? That's something I've always wondered. And you, you'll notice that uh, I don't do this show like a question and answer. I do sort of, sort of more like a conversation. I hope you don't mind. No, absolutely not. It's great. That's a question I've always had. I mean, are there actually people trying to cover up whatever the whatever they know, and why is that? I mean, within well, the government, people honest, that should be perfectly know. honest. I think that there have been multiple reasons why they have, there's been government involvement, and I think it's evolved throughout the years. You know, one of the in this paper that you've read that I'm going to be presenting at uh, both in Roswell and at the symposium, I see uh, early government involvement in this field. Uh, from a from a Cold War perspective and, and a national security perspective, and I think that the meddling uh, into whatever this phenomena is has evolved um, throughout the years for a number of reasons. Uh, for uh, whether it's psychological warfare or, uh, or maybe we're just used as a test bed for uh, those folks who are learning to disinform or misinform. Uh, you know, we're, we're perfect guinea pigs for any, for any sort of uh, disinformation uh, exercise or laboratory. Uh, so I think there's multiple purposes and, and, and multiple uses. We're also just a convenient cover for any new exotic aircraft that they're being experimented on the part of the, of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, you know, when, when they're flying around their latest uh, stealth technology, they prefer that people think they're UFOs rather than what they are. Yeah, exactly. See, that that's, that's my angle, too, is that uh, the subject is a good Rorschach blot, touchstone, something. It's a good tool to use when you're trying to obfuscate something else that has nothing to do with UFOs, visitors from other planets, whatever you want to call them, the UFO subject in general, the paranormal. However, there's a core issue here. If there are people in the in uh, positions of power in the government, not elected officials um, because they come and go, that um, are aware of some sort of presence besides human on this planet, which I choose to say instead of aliens, because that brings up a whole, you know, uh, that, that that brings up a whole uh, issue that of uh, ETH. But if they are aware of such a thing, why is there a cover up? Why are they, you know, wh- why do they try to keep the issue away from the public and obfuscate whatever they do know? And I, you know, I've got my own uh, answers about that. But um, why uh, mess with UFO researchers and throw them, you know, throw them off the track, so to speak? Yeah, it's. It- you know, it's interesting. I, I think that, I mean, my personal belief is that if, uh, let's say that ETH is true, that these visitors are from outside of our planet, uh, outside of our solar system from far reaches of the universe, I mean, obviously their technology is so far in advance, we couldn't possibly even comprehend it. Uh, and it could simply be that, uh, uh, that, the co- that there's a cover-up going on simply because there's ignorance on the part of those folks in government. In other words, they can't control it, and, and uh, there, there are political reasons why they don't want people to know they can't control it. So that's one possibility. Right. But I think, you know, actually, I think actually, uh, Chris Carter hit it on the head in one of his uh, X Files episodes, and it's one of my favorite episodes where this uh, couple are driving down a country road, and this UFO triangular craft comes out, and these aliens get out, you know, classic gray-looking creatures, and, and they abduct these this, this couple. And then in the next scene, uh, another larger UFO comes down and abducts the gray aliens and the and the humans. <laughs> and it turns out that the the gray aliens are Air Force people in disguise. So it's you know, there's there's so many layers to this onion. And and like I said, why the government has been meddling in it, you know, for their own, they have their own reasons for doing so. But as long as they're still in the in, in the mix, uh, I think we're going to have trouble. 
uh, coming to an understanding of, of what this other presence is. Because I know that we can't uh, explain away all the activity based on government involvement. I've thought about this, too. I, I was thinking if you could get, if you have information for people that have this information, they're a lot more willing to talk to you, if you know what I mean. If you don't have anything to give them, the people that know some secrets don't really have any reason to talk to you or tell you anything that you didn't know because you're not helping them. Right, exactly. Um, how do you see this? How do you see, how do you see cracking the nut of secrecy? Such as it is, well, or whatever I, I, it is. Yeah, to be honest, I think cracking the nut is going is going to happen with um, uh, folks who are willing to uh, spend the time and uh, dig into government archives and look at some of the recently declassified documentation. Because the bottom line is that uh, you know, no matter how careful a cover up may be, there's going to be traces that are still left out there of, of an operation that can be pieced together. Uh, with, with the proper perspective and, and with the proper research. I think you could see even from that, from the recent paper I wrote, that here we have something, uh, that's in, out there in plain sight, and yet I've never seen anybody doing any sort of UFO research on that. Uh, to me that was astounding that here we have a number of folks who have claimed to thoroughly research the earlier period, the early period, Yet they missed this, uh, this, this early, these early occurrences of, of possible government disinformation or misinformation or use of the field. So, yeah, there, there, there are things out there that I think, and we have to start cracking it, though, with mundane exclamations. I don't think we can crack it by starting out with ETH. Uh, I think we crack it by hitting the government where it's going to hurt them most, which is uh, with the truth about their, their involvement in the field. And hopefully if you expose enough of that, uh, you know, it no longer becomes an attractive game to them because they have, they have less to, to gain from it. it. It sounds like more of an uh, embarrassment uh, strategy than anything else. Absolutely. I think also, though, we have a responsibility as UFO researchers just to be careful about what, what, how we regurgitate information that we receive. Uh, I knew coming into this position that one of the hard stances I was going to take was uh, I am not going to accept anonymous sources. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, have inside sources or uh, folks that come to me and say, uh, you know, I can't reveal my identity, but I'm willing to feed you this information. We know from past experience how some of this has been the downfall of so many UFO researchers who have taken that carrot and have taken down that primrose path of, um, you know, I'll get you on the inside, but, but keep me anonymous. Uh, to me, that, that's just been a, a perfect way to uh, keep UFO researchers on the wrong path and, and, uh, to, and to obscure what the real truth is. So we really have to be careful about who these, who these folks are that, that come to us with, with such claims. Yeah, it's interesting you said about being careful because I've gotten good information from people who don't want their identities revealed. But the thing is... You check other people, you check other sources, and you make sure that what they're telling you, anonymous or not, holds up under scrutiny. You don't even have to refer to them. All you have to say is, you know, this is what I found, and who cares where it came from, who told you about it in the first place. You've been able to establish that this piece of information, whatever it is, is uh, legitimate. So um, I don't think you can shut those people off completely, but you're right. If you're um, if you're a gullible type that really likes to you know uh, publish and show everybody what you found and don't really check things out, you know you'll turn into somebody like Paul Benowitz or or, or uh, Bill Cooper or something like that. 
Exactly. And, and to be honest, I think uh, that tactics have changed, in, and these anonymous sources that have their own agenda uh, and, and they're releasing information for their own purposes. I think they're actually using the Internet as, as the new breeding ground for that disinformation. Um, they don't have to go through the, through the conduit of, of normal channels like they did in the past. Uh, there's a way for them to achieve the same results by just putting it out there on a bulletin board or a message site. Or, uh, and so it's interesting to peruse the Internet and see some of the stuff that's out there and, and, and how it's being used as, as uh as a convenient channel for getting that same information out. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was going to ask you one one of the papers you presented, I think, at one of the Aztec conferences, was about the danger of um, UFO research on the internet or how the internet affects the UFO research community and how people see it publicly. What did you really? Yeah, did, exactly. Um, you know, I, I I find it extremely interesting how uh, some of these major. Um, um, Message boards like uh, um, the uh, Top Secret Forum of Top Secret and yeah. um, the Open Minds Forum uh, have pushed some of these stories that have become myth that have no uh, there's no substance to, to it when, when you really look at it um, or if you do if you do more in depth research. Yeah, it, it's we're just in this neighborhood that happens to have sirens. It seems to not happen on other people's shows. I don't know why. They they know I'm doing I'm doing good work and have good information. They're trying to mess me up. Yeah, uh, the the ubiquitous exactly. the ubiquitous they. Can you be more specific about the uh, some of the dangers uh, about what kind of information sure. comes out on the internet and what people do with it? There are certain there are some folks in government that that want to build on the UFO. Uh, subject by creating new myths. Uh, and, and for example, um, when you had the the, um, the 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 pictures of the um, uh, of the UFOs that were taken in California last year, the infamous drones, or, or yeah. before that, and uh, all of the carrot documentation that came after that, and how the internet really promulgated that. And, and, and made it into a real story when, when there's really no substance behind it. I think we see the same thing with, with uh, Project Serpo and some of the allegations behind what that's all about. And then just the, the, just the, the boards in general where, you know, you, you get folks posting their alleged uh, videos and photos and, and all of a sudden this myth is building and building and there's no uh, real research being done or real facts being checked. And it's it's really scary to see that that, that folks uh, actually uh, you know they swallow this uh, this new information uh, hook line and sinker uh, because it's there and and nobody's really countering that nobody's really going out there and actively speaking out against it. Well, you know what uh, people that do go out and speak out against it when they do and if they do people in the public don't really listen to it because it just takes too much time to think about it. It's a lot easier to look at something amusing and laugh at it than to take something seriously that the authorities tell you there's nothing, you know, there's nothing to it, don't worry about it, so let's not take it seriously. The scholars tell you not to take it seriously. The media tells you not to take it seriously. So why listen to somebody who's being thoughtful and, and um, trying to tell you what they think is important and what isn't? It's a very, very tough uphill climb just because of the nature of our society and the way people digest media and messages. You're right, exactly right. And it's actually a double whammy because uh, on the one hand, you'll be accused of being a debunker, uh, and on the other hand, uh, you'll be accused of taking the fun out of the mystery. Uh, you know, a lot of folks out there, they love the mystery. Yeah. You know, they don't want the mystery to be explained. Uh, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit, how that, 
some of us in the field are, are in this to to solve the mystery, and there are others out there who simply want to perpetuate it. And they're perfectly happy if, 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 if you know, there, there is no explanation. It's open-ended. You can see this on every uh, paranormal or um, a UFO show that's on TV. It's always, all the shows end the same. It's always an open-ended question. There is no resolution. And, and, and to a lot of folks out there, that, that's what appeals to them. Right, unless it's a... Um... See that—that's ninety-nine percent of the shows. Unless there's a uh, show that's written or sponsored by a skeptical organization, then there's an explanation that makes sense in one case, but not any others. So you know, you get you kind of, you get kind of a fake resolution. Right, exactly. And it's it's one of the downfalls, though, of I think uh, a lot of shows out there is is that either the believers are given uh, too much sway. Uh, or the debunkers are the, the skeptics who really look at the facts and uh, who are really w- willing to look at it even with an o- with an open mind yeah. uh, are are really left out of the situation and they're they're left out of the formula. It's uh, it's it's all about being at one end of the spectrum or the other uh, instead of being in between. Well, it's you know that that goes back to the culture and how people digest information and uh, media messages. If you try to present a show along the lines of what you're saying, and I agree with you. Nobody would watch it. Exactly. There has no entertainment value. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is unfortunate. I mean, you could say that uh, a nature documentary has no entertainment value. But the thing is, everybody agrees that there's animals that do strain, you know, animals that swim in the ocean and run on the, uh, in the jungle and all that. So it's a, little, it's a lot easier to make it entertaining because there's a resolution there. But people are really unhappy when things are not decided. You know, that when there isn't an answer somewhere or or like you said, left hanging be, for the sake of it. You know, I, I don't know the solution to that except for to make the kind of show that you would want to see or I w- would want to see and then maybe distribute it on the Web or by DVD like uh, Paul Kimball is doing with uh, Best Evidence. And uh, his, he's got a show coming up this fall. Uh, it's just going to be a talk show with three or four people sitting around discussing paranormal topics and the pros and cons, and there'll be skeptics and people on the other side of it. And I don't know if we'll come to any resolution, but that's the kind of program I would like to see. Right, exactly. And I think that uh, it would be difficult to take what you and I are discussing and make it into something that's that's, uh, for mass consumption or has high entertainment value. Uh, And and to be honest, I'm not really interested in, 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 in doing that. I think... I, I think what I would like to do is make sure that within the field that folks uh, start to look at the behaviors and start looking at what's happened to ufology for the last 60 years and start coming up to a consensus about how things need to change uh, to, to move things forward. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the history of, of what, what, uh, what's happened even among our, our ranks, uh, it's it's all about uh, infighting and division and uh, differences of opinions and and it seems like nobody can really come to a, even a consensus about uh, you know what hypotheses to focus on um, or what research to focus on. Or there's too many personal attacks and and I think again we have to go back to the government involvement in all of this where uh, for them divide and conquer uh, and keeping us. Uh, um, uh, incohesive and divided has been to their benefit. It is part of it's part of a, of a plan, uh, and, and and it's it's been difficult to overcome that. Yeah, a lot of people would say, well, why would the government bother with a bunch of UFO researchers? They're you know there's nothing they should be afraid of. There's nothing there. 
I'm, I'm taking the uh, taking the uh, normal Joe on the street uh, point of view. So why would they even care about UFO researchers? Why would they even care if they were fighting? Well, I think yeah, because there there's an ultimate truth or there there's an ultimate agenda that they don't want us to be privy to. I mean, even if we just took it from a mundane national security perspective, take, for example, MUFON's website, where we're getting 400 to 600 reports a month that are reported real-time to us, um, people uploading videos and photos. You know, I mean, you have to know this makes the government nervous because uh, I'm, the, these reports are out there immediately within minutes on the, on the World Wide Web. They're on the Internet. And I know that foreign governments are probably monitoring that just in case somebody happens to take a snapshot of a new uh, piece of technology that's American. Right. So they have to be nervous that, that there's that possibility. So there, there, there's, and for them it's an issue of how do you control that. They, they obviously can't stop us from doing it, so they, they need some sort of a control mechanism in place. And, and, you know, we talked about a number of reasons why they could be using the field uh, for, for their own uh, purposes, whether it's disinformation or psychological warfare or to cover up their exotic craft. Um, and if that's their ultimate agenda, or if that's what they've been doing, uh, they would rather they would rather us to be divided and think that uh, you know ETH is uh, is the main possibility, and men in black are out there, uh, rather than focus on on what those activities are. Okay, so in light of that, what direction do you want to take MUFON in? What profile, public profile, do you want it to have? And what do you really want to accomplish while you're there? Well, I, I think number one is uh, I think I'm, I'm, we're taking move on to where it needs to be, which is uh, on the higher ground, and that is uh, to, if at all possible, to avoid uh, you know infighting or personal attacks or the division that that this field has been subject to. Uh, for example, when, when I first joined, one of the things that was common was for the MUFON Journal to allow uh, articles to be published where where other researchers were were personally attacked or criticized, and I think that's ridiculous. I think we need to, to be careful about that and, and focus on, on facts rather than people, right. uh, focus on messages and opinions rather than, than, than people. Uh, these are common debunking tactics. The other thing we can do is to get back to basics, and that is just to, to get back to, to science. So one of the things we're doing here at MUFON, for example, is we're focusing on quality investigation. Uh, you know, when reports come in, we don't spend time on, you know, lights in the sky. We, we prioritize the cases, the ones that are hot, that, that we can go and gather quality evidence, especially now that we have uh, financial assistance, assistance to do so, to go out there and gather this evidence real time and uh, get it analyzed and start putting real science on it. So it's really been trying to uh, get back to... Um, uh, MUFON's roots, and I, which have sort of been eroded over the years, um, and, and to put us back into uh, uh, what we're supposed to be doing, which is scientific research of the phenomena for the benefit of humanity. There's got to be growing pains associated with that. And there's absolutely growing pains. <laughs> I mean, when, you're, when you come into an organization that's been around this long, uh, there's a culture that you're faced with that needs to be changed, and there are folks that have been in their positions for a long time, and uh, they don't like they don't like things to be uh, turned upside down. So it definitely, it's been, it's been an experience for me, and a lot of it's people management. Um, yeah. But we have some really good people. Uh, we have a real good core group of folks that, uh, uh, for example, that are uh, the functional directors of MUFON, our director of research, our director of public education, our state directors, uh, our director of investigations. 
So it's really just getting a good team of people that that have uh, you know they're the same mindset and, and they're they don't have personal agendas to push. Uh, their interest is to move the organization along. Yeah, it's really hard when you get people in as marginalized a group as uh, UFO researchers to not feel personally attacked when somebody disagrees with them. Do you get a lot of that? Sure, absolutely, we do. I mean, um, I, I think it's, you know, it, it's kind of like we've seen people come and go. They join MUFON, and uh, if, if they feel marginalized or if they feel that they're being personally attacked, they quit. They go out and form their own groups. So, yes, there, there's quite a bit of that. I think we see that uh, just uh, uh, not even within the organization, but outside the organization. If, right. if you uh, look at uh, some of the major researchers in this field, uh, they've been at each other's throats for a number of years. So folks just, uh, they just can't agree. Yeah, you know what? I've been able to stay out of that mostly, but since Project Beta, every once in a while somebody will come up to me and I'll, they'll start a con- I don't agree with you on this, and very soon they're starting to insult me personally, and I, I, I wonder what's going on there. All I'm saying is answer this question. I'm not saying you're stupid. I just said please answer this question, and they turn it around to you're an idiot and you can't do anything at that point. So, how you know what do you do with those people when they're in MUFON and they're and they they um, are messing up the mission or whatever you want to call it? I mean, how do you deal with that politically? Well, I've had to deal with uh, quite a bit of that, uh, especially this year. Uh, but I think I think the bottom line is you you arm yourself with facts. Uh, you take the higher ground. You, you don't you don't retaliate and and uh, take the personal attack stance. Uh, and, and you stick to the facts, and you focus on the mission, and uh, and that usually uh, gets you get you out of the uh, out of the mess. Uh, at least it's helped me in the past. Well, it sounds like a great way to go about it. I mean, the implementation of it, I'm sure, is at times very difficult. How you know? How do the other board members and the membership and all that feel about the changes you're trying to you and I guess some of your your uh, colleagues are trying to make? Well, the, the MUFON board of directors are completely on board with it. Uh, we have a real, real good group of directors who um, have, uh, you know, have actually been involved um, uh, for the last six years. Uh, you know, before I even took over the, the, the organization, I joined the board, and, and a real good cohesive group that that I'm proud to serve with. So up at the up, at the upper echelon of MUFON, we're we're all of one mind. Uh, I think we have uh, we've had some uh, challenges with some of our state chapters and, and with certain leaders. Uh, and we've had to make some adjustments there, and and, uh, and uh, do some consolidation, for example. So, but little by little, we're we're getting to the point where, uh, you know, the organization is going to move move forward with one voice, and um, you know, as decentralized it has been run for the last uh, 40 years, uh, the model needs to change, and and we need to um, we need to have one voice as an organization, and we're moving towards that. Well, I hope it moves forward because. Um UFO organizations, as you know, historically have uh, often succumbed to infighting, and uh, there's not, like you said, if there's not a cohesive voice, the media and the public and all that stop listening because they think, well, it's a bunch of UFO wackos fighting with each other. I'm not hearing anything interesting. I think the most interesting thing would be to, like you said, use uh, methods of science, new science, new theories to explain to people that, that, um, I can't remember who said Robert Durant. I think said it first was um, that that the UFO subject is is a is something that deserves attention from serious minds. I think that might be the the hardest thing to do, and the, maybe what sounds like you've got the mission statement of MUFON for right now. Right, I would agree with that. 
And even if you look at the past history of, of, of our prior prior organizations like NICAP and APRO, um, a lot of it had, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, infighting and, and, and a lot of the downfall had to do with personalities. And um, there was a lot of ego involved. And, 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 and I think uh, what we're seeing here now is uh, the, the folks that I'm surrounded with, uh, both on the board and as well as in leadership positions, uh, really have the organization's best interest in mind. And, and that we try to minimize this, the, the whole issue of ego and, uh, and cults of personality and so on the, the, that have plagued uh, past organizations. So we're hoping that, that we do uh, have a, a, a long uh, and um, prosperous future. And I think the board of directors has really strive for that. How, how about the membership? Do you, are you getting... Uh any uh, feedback from the membership about uh, d- different directions you're taking and not always looking at the ETH as the answer, et cetera? You know, not, not, a, not a lot, uh, to be honest. Um, I think that, you know, we have, obviously, with close to 3,000 members, we have a variety of opinions and a variety of beliefs. And there are some folks who think that uh, we don't spend enough time, for example, on the abduction phenomena, uh, or, you know, why aren't we looking at structures on Mars, uh, or the far side of the moon, or, and and I think it just gets back to uh, dealing with uh, with our with our core mission, which is uh, you know it's science, and uh, we can only chew off so much, and uh, we have enough investigations happening here on uh, Terra Firma that uh, we don't need to be looking outside the planet. Um, so I, I think. Um, you know, like I said, we, we do get a lot of folks that, that voice their opinions, and, and we, we try to you know, just keep it within the context of our mission. Well, it sounds like a great idea. I hope it moves forward and um, that uh, when somebody goes for a quote about some UFO subject, they won't be going to the same person each time, you know, or at least somebody who is, you know, thoughtful, somebody who's a represent, representative for MUFON. Which re, uh, or for the UFO community in general, just a go-to person. You know, now they have, I, I guess they have um, Stan Friedman. They always go to him, or for the other side, they always go. I guess it used to be Phil Class. Now I guess it's somebody like Michael Shermer or Seth Shostak. Part of the difficulty, I guess, with your mission is to get yourself to that place where when somebody comes on and says something about uh, the latest UFO case, that they're taken seriously by 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 serious people. Right, exactly, um, and, and I and I think that um, you know there there are a good group of folks out there that that are still actively researchers in the field. Uh, they're still actively researching, and uh, those folks, um, you know, they're they're still out there with an open mind. You know, still uncovering evidence. They're still looking for new evidence. I think the problem we run into is when somebody who's been in the field for so long that their mind is already made up. And, and their beliefs are set. Uh, uh, do we necessarily want them to be the spokespersons for for the field? Uh, and and my my question is probably not, uh, because you know we need to be open minded enough to to know that we don't have all the answers, and that we have to keep looking. Can you think of somebody that can equivocate an answer, because that's about all you can do with UFO with the UFO subject, except to try and prove to people there's something worthy of studying. Uh, but somebody that has that kind of soundbite mentality that that can go on in the media and, and make a make a case for the seriousness of the subject. I, the only pe- person I can think of right now that does a f- reasonably good job actually is uh, Nick Pope. 
Right. I would say uh, Nick Pope uh, and uh, even Stan Freeman, I, I think. Uh, That's true. Uh, can do a good job at uh, producing those sound bites. Um, but there's the public face of ufology, and then there's and there, then there's ufology in, in terms of the progress we're making as as a as a as a group. Um, and and um, I think we will really need are, are the folks that are going to act as the leaders for overcoming some of these internal divisions and and trying to lead the field to with new research goals and. Uh, trying to figure out what new approaches and new strategies we should take. Uh, and I think that's what we're lacking right now. Um, we do have some folks that can go out there and, 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 and do, great jo- do a great job on national TV uh, for a public face, uh, but we're lacking leaders in the field. It, it seems like uh, that leadership is sort of waned. That's true. Well, I, the reason I wanted to have, the, have you on the show is that I consider you one of those people that, that are doing that and can do that in the future, uh, especially after talking to you for just a little bit at the um, Crash Retrieval Conference last year. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask about? Before you became a director, director of MUFON, you were involved in a project called Pandora, which was to get um, the vast case files of MUFON put into a database. How did that go, and um, what have you found out about it? Well, we have, we've actually uh, digitized, I would say, about uh, 93, 95% of our uh, paper files. Um, and uh, they've been scanned and optically character read and, and put into a, a Adobe PDF format, which are completely keyword searchable. Mm-hmm. So and I have all these sitting on my laptop, and we've distributed them out to our state directors for research. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a great uh, project just to be able to, um, you know, to find and to do some data mining, uh, the information, uh, that we're looking for, um, which has not been possible, has not been possible in the past. Uh, at the same time, I was surprised about how few files we had in our archives for being around for 40 years. Uh, in fact, we've accumulated more, uh, more data, uh, in the last six years through our website than we had in the previous uh, 34 years. And I think, so it's one of the issues we had in the past with our, our investigative body who would go out and do research, uh, but their, their research would never end up at headquarters. Um, so the project has been well worthwhile and, um, uh, just from a, from a, from a research point of view, but, but I can tell you the, the internet and what we're doing now with technology, uh, has far even surpassed that. When you, uh, looked at the, uh, data, is there any, effort to go in and look at the data using different criteria to try and find patterns and is any fruit is any anything been fruitful in the uh, doing it that way we, we have not done that with these uh, with these Pandora files um, just because we, we haven't had um, uh, the funds or the people to spend the time to do to do that so we have uh, recently hired some some researchers to start doing some of that so we, we're, we're doing some active work right now. Uh, as part of uh, being able to use some of the funds from our our, uh, our project with uh, with uh, Bigelow Aerospace uh, to be able to do some of that data mining. Oh, okay. Because I remember um, <laughs> actually, I went out when Larry King did that Larry King Live at Area 51. The head of Kufos, I don't think it was Rodiger at the time. It might have been somebody else. And Walt Andrus were both at the one of Bigelow's hotels in Las Vegas, trying to get him to uh, be interested in in donating some money to. Um, 
to either one of their organizations, and I don't think either of them were successful at that time. But it sounds like you are now, which is good. I mean, that's that's the the biggest uh, wall that a lot of organizations run up against is having the money to do even do a little bit of work, and it's so easy to uh, get a couple of people to do uh, to look at data and run different scenarios and. You know, I was thinking like uh, Valet did in the '60s, which where he he had to do with with uh, magnetic cards and punch cards. Yet he was able to find some patterns which he thought were significant. You know, maybe you could run it what time of day, what day of the week, what geographic area, um, you know, what kind of person, their income, all kinds of strange little statistics, almost like you know, looking at baseball statistics and find out if there's an unrecognized pattern that nobody looked at before because they didn't have this, all this data available to them. Exactly. So you're planning to do stuff like that, I, I guess. We are, and we're actively doing that now, which we, we were not able to do before. Yeah. Um, now, well, I should have said we were not able to do that before. MUFON actually has done quite a bit of work in the past. Uh, for example, we, we had a project called the Abduction Transcription Project, uh, which was run by a, a former uh, MUFON member named Dan Wright. Uh, and what he did was he uh, he actually um, recruited a number of uh, hypnotherapists who were doing work with abductees, and they sent them uh, transcripts of all of the hypnosis sessions, and they had all that transcribed, and they kept all the witness information out uh, just to see there were patterns in, in abductee stories. So I think, think it's been a, attempted in the past over subsets of data. Uh, what the Pandora Project did was to get all the data in our archives into an electronic format so we can start working on other subsets. When you get to a point where some, some patterns stick out, I guess that uh, the first place people would be able to hear about that is uh, or read about is in the MUFON journal. Exactly. And I think, I think probably where the real research will come into play is uh, once we uh, have been able to get this scientific symposium going and uh, we've kick-started the intellectual curiosity of enough folks out there in academia to start looking at this, uh, giving them the data and say, okay, here's the data, massage it. You, you have the, the graduate students and you have the, the time and you have the competing power. Uh, go at it and uh, let's see what comes out of it. Right. Yeah, somebody's, somebody, uh, there are people emailing questions in, which we will get to. Oh, I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll ask you one of the questions that came in. This is from my co <clears throat> sometime co-host, Walter, who was actually a uh, Russian language specialist for the FBI in the early 90s. I thought you might like to know. His, uh, one of his questions is, um, what does MUFON see as the most significant piece of evidence to support the ET hypothesis in the last 10 or 20 years or more? The most significant piece of evidence that supports ETH. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think that such a thing exists. I mean, there's no, there's no physical evidence that I've seen that would say, okay, this is uh, an extraterrestrial vehicle. Uh, the closest thing would probably be uh, the abduction phenomena and some of the common stories that abductees have told in, under hypnosis or, or even from conscious memories of being on board craft and, and, and being told that uh, who, who these visitors were, that they were not of this earth, that they were from some far reach, uh, far reaches of the, of the universe. So that that's the only... Uh, uh, evidence that I've seen, and, and that in itself is anecdotal. So it, it, I don't think there's anything real credible that we have, or anybody has, that could definitively say that uh, that that we have, uh, you know, ETH is, is real. 
Yeah, right. Um, there's that also brings up another issue, um, and abduction researchers are are quite adamant that uh, hypnotically recalled um, uh, events or experiences are a valid area of research, whereas other people counter that um, hypnosis is uh, uh, information recovered in hypnotic sessions is uh, notoriously mercurial. Um, uh, e- people are easily led, etc. How do you feel about that that controversy? Well, I, I think there's uh, validity to both arguments. Uh, you know, there, there are folks that think uh, hypnosis is a is a way to to uncover uh, repressed memories, uh, but then at the same time, we're, we're, we have uh, folks who think, well, what are those repressed memories? Are, are they actual physical events uh, or events that occurred, or, or is it trauma that's been covered up? Um, you know, so there's there's way too many you know questions and, and, and not enough answers about the validity of of the phenomena. Even in, even in MUFON, we don't use hypnosis uh, as a primary investigative tool. We use it to try to uncover more information or to raise red flags or uh, to, to try to, to to look at other avenues of investigation. Uh, so you know, I think there there's validity to both arguments. Well, yeah, it's a, that sounds like a very you know uh, logical way to go about it. You use it as a tool, not an end, which I, um, I I would agree with. I mean, if there's something there that you know something comes up and um, there's something that be, can be checked externally, it, uh, it 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 can do nothing but help. I mean, I don't I don't know if uh, hypnotic uh, regression is is considered uh, admissible in courts of law anymore. It used to be, but but not anymore. But it, it can be used as a used as a tool, and you don't have to tell anybody you used it. Right. It's just one of the tools we have in our tool belt. And, um, you know, there, there are other things that, uh, that can be done during an investigation to try to to try to let uh, credibility to, to whatever the story is that comes out of the hypnosis session. Okay. We're talking with James Carrion, who's the uh, international director of the Mutual UFO Network, about what he's doing with the organization, what directions it's taking, his own ideas about uh, what he wants to do with it, and how to change the um, the character, the image, the um, philosophy of the organization, so that it uh, can move forward and not just be um, an organization of uh, people that are going out and looking for aliens from other planets. Um, which is why I wanted to have him on in the first place. It's Radio Mysterioso, and we'll be back in a few minutes here with James Carrion. Stay with us, and uh, thanks for listening. I did ask you a little bit about uh, your Army career in uh, intelligence, or maybe it was counterintelligence. I'm not sure which. How did you get involved with that, and do you use it any in your uh, UFO research? And do people have any? You know, are people suspicious of you because of this? Uh, sure. Actually, <clears throat> I was uh, four years active as an enlisted uh, Army person, um, and I was uh, in signals intelligence. Uh, so I was a Russian linguist. We, we intercepted Russian communications uh, during the height of the Cold War, and those went directly to the National Security Agency. Um, spent a couple of years in the reserves. Uh, uh, doing air intelligence, flying back and forth between Key West and Guant- Guantanamo, also doing signals intelligence. So, yeah, I have no experience uh, in uh, counterintelligence, though, though I do know from the time I had spent in the military how important um, security classifications are and compartmentalizations and need to know uh, how seriously that's taken. 
So it, it has given me some perspective in terms of this work that I do. Um, now, as far as accusations, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm accused every day of being part of a cover-up, or yeah. uh, I made I the top 100 men in black list on the Internet. Uh, you know, ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that. But this, is, this, this is part of the culture. I mean, it's a uh, conspiracy is hand-in-hand hand with... Uh, with the UFO field. I mean, that, that's all part of it. And, and I think also used and exploited uh, by certain elements in the government. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just, you just, it's just uh, part of the course. Did you, you, when you were in uh, Signals Intelligence, did you ever um, intercept anything that was along the lines of UFOs or paranormal, anything like that? You know, not, not one thing, just mundane, normal military communication, uh, nothing of that magnitude. Yeah, because I, I noticed that uh, Thomas Dooley is on your board of directors. Mm-hmm. Is this he the is. same Thomas Dooley that used to be in the NSA? Right. Tom Dooley is also a former uh, NSA. Um, I'm not sure what his position was in the agency. Uh, even Clifford Cliff, uh, who is on our, is also on our board of directors, he's a, a former uh, Army security agency guy. He actually did something very similar to what I did uh, when he was in the Army, uh, though much earlier. But I think that... You know, folks that um, that have an intelligence background and happen to be in the UFO field are not there because uh, they've been put there. I think they just have a general interest uh, because they're intrigued. As intriguing as their intelligence work was, uh, the UFO field is just as intriguing to them. Right. There's, You know what? I've always wondered about this. There's people in the government that have been interested in the UFO subject, yet when they leave the government, they're still running around looking for an answer. If they knew the answer in the first place, if they could get it from the, you know, from their work in the government, do you think they'd still be looking? Well, and I think that goes back to um, uh, the principles of, of secrecy, especially the ones that uh, uh, were put into place after World War II. I, the Manhattan Project was probably uh, the the what started all all of this uh, compartmentalization and and, um, and uh, black projects and, and secret budgets and so on. Uh, it's all about need to know. I, I don't. It doesn't really matter what position you you're in in the military, whether you're a, a, a lowly sergeant or a, a lieutenant colonel. If you don't have the need to know, you, you don't know. I mean, if we look at uh, the Manhattan Project, uh, Vice President Truman knew nothing about the Manhattan Project until he became president, right. uh, because somebody deemed he wasn't. Uh, he didn't have the need to know. So I think that uh, folks who uh, who may be in the military. And we're privy. Uh, well, they have no reason to, to run around and look after the fact because they're privy. But those folks that are still running around after the fact uh, didn't have anything uh, of substance, or didn't find anything of substance when they were in, and this is why they're still looking for answers. That's a conclusion I've come to. Why would they be so interested? Why would somebody who's uh, supposedly high up in the intelligence service services or counterintelligence? If they knew the answer, why would they be out here? And people, for their first thought is, well, that's because they're still working for whatever XYZ um, agency, and they're 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 messing with UFO researchers. And I uh, I, I would tend to think that's that's um, exceedingly rare, and it's mostly because they have they have a curiosity and curious minds. And it seems like an organization like MUFON or um, KUFOs or any you know uh, any group. Or group of people, or you know, leading researchers might be able to give them those answers. So I, I don't see anything weird about it at all. And you bring up the Manhattan Project and uh, the the secrecy surrounding that. 
people say, well, you can't keep secrets. Of course you can keep secrets. They say, well, what about the Manhattan Project? Well, during the Manhattan Project, nobody that needed to know that didn't need to know about it knew about it. We only knew about it because the result of it was a, a bomb was dropped. <laughs> exactly. And or we, if we look at the Venona Project, with the, uh, which the Army Security Agency carried on in secrecy for a number of years, uh, and even the president didn't know about it. And, and had it not been uh, uh, that the, the National Security Agency uh, uh, declassified it in the 90s, uh, we probably still wouldn't know about it. So I'm sure for every... The Nona project we know about, there's a number of, of uh, projects out there that we have no clue about. Yeah, I got in a discussion with somebody that said the government can't keep secrets because we found them all out. That doesn't make sense to me because if we haven't found out about it, obviously it's still a secret, and there's no way for you to know that. So, yeah, exactly. it's, it's very easy to keep secrets. It's been done for quite a long time, and if it was something that supposedly is important as a UFO subject, it, it would probably be very easy. And also, you know, as you know, people are only told certain segments of what they need to know, as you said, need to know. They can guess about what other things are going on, but they, they ultimately don't know because they're not allowed to. And there might be one person up at the top that knows, you know, 90, 90 95% of what's going on. So that right. makes it even more difficult. Exactly. And again, going back to the Manhattan Project, it was, it was structured uh, purposely that way, where you had scientists and, and machinists and a number of other folks that were working on just a small part of the project, and they had no clue why they were working on it or what the whole, the overall picture was until the bomb was exploded. So, the, so they were an active participant, uh, and they were under secrecy oath. But uh, had they even uh, been recruited by, uh, you know, the Soviets, they didn't have the whole, the whole picture. Uh, they just knew their little piece of it. A lot of, um, I've noticed that in um, UFO research is when people find one little piece of information from one person, they tend to say, well, well, this is it and that, you know, th this is the answer, not realizing that that person only knew a little part of it and you're just getting, you know, a tiny little piece of the puzzle. And to uh, extrapolate the entire picture from one piece of the puzzle is, is, is uh, doing yourself a disservice right up front. Exactly. I found out from Peter Robbins that uh, MUFON is involved with city government, uh, city council of Roswell, to put on the uh, uh, their part of the Roswell Festival, and that just started happening this year. Could you explain a little bit how that came about and um, what you hope to accomplish by coming in at uh, the Roswell Festival, which not a lot of people take seriously, but uh, looking at the, uh, the uh, schedule, I noticed that MUFON is trying to inject some seriousness into something that's been sorely lacking for the last... 15 or 20 years? Sure. Um, the way that came about was, uh, I believe it was last year, um, the Roswell Festival was entrusted to uh, a gentleman who who had his own personal beliefs about UFOs, and and, and, uh, and his, his uh, uh, point of view was more of a spiritual point of view. So he, he, he tried to recruit speakers who were leaning towards his own beliefs. Well, some um, of them. I was actually involved in that, and he pretty much stayed out of our way, but the, the last day was uh, very much at evidence that what you're talking about. Exactly. So, so again, I don't know the whole history, and, and I don't want to really go into a lot of detail there because I don't know it. That's fine. The, because of that, the, the, the city approached us and said, okay, we would like uh, a well-known UFO organization to, to sort of take this over since we don't have any uh, experience in that area and uh, help us recruit speakers and, and get this set up. And so, so we agreed to that. What kind of stuff is being presented there? This year, at the this year, uh, you mean at the uh, by the city? 
Yes, the the city in in uh, cooperation and association with MUFON. Well, the speakers that that, that I know of that have been uh, that, are, that will be presenting there, uh, Nick Pope will be there. I'll be presenting. Um, we have a couple of MUFON members, uh, Debbie Ziegelmeyer and her brother Chuck Zukowski, who will also be presenting. Uh, there's been a lot of work with in, in with Roswell, the Roswell Digs that uh, were featured on uh, one of the cable shows not too long ago. Right. Um, and. Um, Let's see who else is there. Uh, well, they've, they've even gotten Travis Walton to come down uh, and to do some presentations. So it's a mixture of the old and the new, and uh, it's a little bit of everything. And actually, the, there's another conference going out at the same time. It's actually a conference of Christian uh, uh, UFO speakers who, who are presenting the uh, um, you know, UFOs from the Christian point of view. That has nothing to do with, with what MUFON's doing, but it's, it's going on simultaneously. Right. There's that one, the the city one with MUFON, and the uh, one that's always there at the UFO International UFO Museum. Right. The museum also is doing their own as well. I remember one of the uh, presentations there, and I can't remember who's doing it, is uh, kind of a UFOs 101, which is uh, trying to bring in people that you know don't have a background in it but would like to know what you know, what serious research has been done. And then at the end, they get a little certificate saying they've completed a course, which I think is a great idea. No, absolutely. I think that is a great idea. What are you going to be presenting there? Uh, well, mine is uh, my papers on some of the research I've, I've uh, done into the uh, early years of the phenomena uh, from '46 to '47, uh, and, and just some interesting uh, tidbits of information I found through uh, through uh, newspaper archives and, and doing research into uh, uh, certain uh, national archives and, and different libraries. Um, that shows sort of a government, uh, the, the involvement of government from the from the very uh, early phases of, UFO, of ufology uh, in uh, in forty seven. Could you give an example or two? Um, sure, I, I think uh, this is part of the paper that uh, I send you, and, and you were able to read. Um, yeah. In uh, preview, but, but I think it's a, it's it's very intriguing uh, that two weeks before uh, Kenneth Arnold had his uh, sighting, and when um, UFOs first hit the uh, national consciousness that there was uh, rumors of a, uh, a top-secret project that the um, British and New Zealanders and, and the Americans were working on that possibly was airborne. And, and I found that intriguing um, that this happened just two weeks prior. So I started digging into that uh, into those stories and uh, also trying to piece together the information. And what I've been able to find out was that uh, a lot of the information that was being revealed to the press was misinformation, um, and, and it makes you wonder why. Why was the uh, was misinformation being fed to the press about a possible airborne weapon uh, two weeks before Kenneth Arnold had a sighting? So it, it seems to me there's some tie in there, and um, and what we may be seeing there is some sort of government deception program that uh, wanted the Russians to believe that, uh, that UFOs were ours. Obviously, they've been doing that for a while. Um, well, they did all the way up through the Cold War, and uh, there's evidence for it in my research. And then there, there's also evidence that the UFO subject is being used to draw people in that they, they, they have interest in just, just by basically putting out a piece of bait. I saw some evidence for that in, in your paper, too. I also found it interesting that Kenneth Arnold, uh, his... Uh, Letters that he'd gotten from people were gone through by the Air Force uh, before they um, Davidson and Brown took off in that plane that crashed. 
Exactly. And, and, and that's a whole story in and of itself. Uh, um, when I did some research on the Maury Island incident and Kenneth Arnold's involvement in, in researching that, there, a book could be written just on that, based not only based on what he wrote about, what Kenneth Arnold wrote about in his own book, uh, The Coming of the Saucers, but the fact that the FBI released all their UFO documentation, uh, they confirmed 100% the facts in, in Arnold's book. And, and when you read both uh, Kenneth Arnold's story um, and what happened during his investigation in Maury Island, and you read the FBI documentation that backs him up, what you see is, to me, uh, a very apparent um, counterintelligence operation that was happening in Tacoma uh, during that time. So I'm pretty convinced that, uh, uh, that Kenneth Arnold was way over his head, and he found himself in, in the middle of some sort of counterintelligence operation. Um, even from the point of view that uh, I'm not sure how, if you know any of the story, uh, but when when he was uh, when when he was commissioned by a pulp magazine to go investigate Maury Island, uh, he flew to Tacoma without telling anybody he was going there, and and all the hotels were booked, and lo and behold, he had a hotel room already reserved for him by somebody. He, he had no clue why there was a reservation under his name when nobody even knew he was supposed to show up. And then later on in the story, uh, it's apparent that the room that he was uh, booked into was bugged. Um, and, and so there's, a, you know, there's, there's an obvious uh, intelligence operation going on. Uh, so a lot of folks think, oh, Kenneth Arnold just had a mundane sighting. He became famous for it. That was it. Now, there's so much more to the story uh, that if you start researching, uh, it's just extremely intriguing. Yes, I had heard of this. Now I remember where I'd heard some of this. It's in Maury Island UFO by Ken Thomas. Have you uh, you've seen that book? Have you not? Exactly right. Where he where he where and he actually ties in some of the characters uh, of that story, like Fred Crisman, uh, to a later events like the Kennedy assassination. And so there's right. some very uh, unusual people that have been involved early on in in this field, and it makes you wonder, you know. Why? And again, it goes back to some of the beliefs that I have that uh, that there was an early on there was a government deception operation that was in place that UFOs fit into very nicely. You know, it's very strange when you say that at the uh, scientific exploration conference in San Diego in 2000. I believe it was in San Diego in 2000. Bob Wood, who is one of your board members, presented a paper about. Um, one of the so-called uh, uh, MJ-12 documents or whatever, one of the documents that come through Tim Cooper and that scenario. But the thing is, he let me look at the document. And what it was was a big sheet. You've probably seen it. It's a big sheet of paper with 8.5 by 11 segments on it to be cut out, I guess, to be made into uh, something somebody could read. But what it was was it was describing government involvement with the UFO subject, in I think in no uncertain terms. And you're thinking, uh, you know, my, I, I didn't know what to make of it. Is this because the government really knows about this? Or were they engaged in some sort of disinformation with this document they were going to send out to people? And I think that it was dated sometime in the late 1950s or early 60s. Uh, have you seen that, um, that particular document? He had done a forensic analysis on it. There had been little pieces taken out of it, you know, little dots of paper taken out so they could test the paper for aging and the, the ink used and all that. But it was a very curious thing, and you know, you, you could look at it in uh, many different ways. Yeah, I'm not sure of the, of the exact document, but I do know that one of the MJ, MJ-12 related documents uh, even mentions um, 
the uh, the Maury Island um, uh, principles, like Fred Crisman as a counterintelligence agent. He's called a counterintelligence agent. Uh, but so it makes you wonder, you know, you know how uh, all those documents have been released. Uh, whether there's uh, there's uh, there's elements of truth in there because their purpose is to disinform, right? Uh, and also also to muddy the waters of what was already a successful counterintelligence operation. Um, so I, I don't put a lot of stock, to be honest, in in um, leaked documents, uh, just because again, going back to my earlier discussion about the problem with anonymous sources. Uh, we have the same issue with, with leaked documents. Typically, leaked documents are done for effect. Right. Um, I, I find it extremely interesting, for example, that it wasn't until Bill Moore and uh, Berlitz came out with the Roswell book that all of a sudden um, the, the, this whole flood of uh, MJ-12-related documents were released. And, and some would want to say, well, that, that's because uh, these insiders decided it was an appropriate time and, and my argument is, I think that they were manipulating the beliefs, uh, knowing that the uh, this Roswell story was coming out, so they, they did it, you know, in their favor. A lot of folks think Roswell is a unique incident, uh, and, and in fact, if you go back and research some of the earlier uh, newspaper articles from that time, it in fact is not. There were a whole slew of, of things that crashed to the earth uh, in, in July, or you know, late June and July of '47. Roswell just happened to capture the national attention because the military was involved. Yeah, right. It's um, you know, as you know, as you probably know, I I uh, know Bill Moore, and uh, that's that side of the uh, story. I think his motivations were, you know, what he said they were. However, um, there's so much noise and uh, disinformation associated with it. I think the main lesson from it is, like you said, to be careful where the information is coming from, what you believe, or what you know, what to ch- what you choose to take uh, seriously, and what you might want to check up on. Um, actually, you answered one of the uh, other questions somebody had um, sent in about uh, MJ12 and if MUFON sees any value in pursuing any leads implied in them, because uh, you know they're they're disinformation, but there is some information contained in them. How hard is it to try and uh, follow up on any leads that are in there? Sure. And, um, again, this, this is my personal belief. And, and as head of MUFON, um, you know, I, I would say we, I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking into the MJ4 documentation. Uh, though one of our board members, Bob Wood, and his son Ryan have uh, done quite a bit of work in that area. Uh, and, again, this is uh, their, their own uh, personal research. Um, you know, I, I got to say that uh, having been in, in intelligence and having read enough about intelligence, um, intelligence operations are typically long term. Um, it right. takes time to develop. It takes time to deceive. Uh, even if you look, for example, back when when um, uh, the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy cause had sued the NSA for their documents, and and the NSA said we can't release them, and and they swore. Uh, the judge to secrecy, and he, there was an affidavit that was classified and then later declassified. And it's interesting to me that when you read that affidavit, there's not a lot. It's pretty mundane. There was no reason for them to classify it back then. So it seemed like it was almost classified for effect uh, to, to make it seem like there was there were secrets that, that were being hidden. So i, I got to say that there, there are some very smart folks in, in the employee of the intelligence agencies and I'm sure they go out and they recruit the top psychologists that they can from academia, uh, and, and they think long term. Short term is not a, is not the issue for them. Um, for any deception operation to be successful, 
it has to be well well thought out and, and planned well in advance. So so we don't know. Um, for example, this uh, this MJ12 documentation. Uh, uh, you know how far out this was thought of, and and uh, but I, but I do know that um, when you're in the know, you take your secrecy oath very 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 seriously. So to me, this whole concept of an insider that's leaking documents because they got uh, uh, their consciousness was getting to them or they're on their deathbed just doesn't ring very true to me. It, it just sounds, it's very hollow. It, 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 it sounds, uh, again, for a fact, uh, as part of some purposeful operation. You know what? I agree with you, and I'm glad to hear you say that because it's, uh, uh, a lot of people have said that to me. It's like, why do you even pay attention to these people? For some people, it's it's interesting and helpful, and and for but for most people, it's not because there's so much junk to go through, and you don't know what the motivation is. So well, it's a rabbit hole that you get sent down, but you'll yeah. spend a lot of time on, and 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 uh, you know you're spinning your wheels, and and um, you know you come you could spend a lot of time down that rabbit hole, and, and in the meantime, the truth uh, is is somewhere else. It's hidden somewhere else. It's usually the purpose of it. Yeah, exactly. And the the thing you said about long term, I discovered that by looking at the history of Soviet intelligence and counterintelligence dis disinformation. They would do things that would take sometimes 30, 20, 30, 40 years to work itself out. Exactly. And the Chinese are doing the same thing. Things they were working on in the, the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s are, are still going on, some of those things. And some of them are actually bearing fruit right now. Exactly. I find it I find it extremely interesting how uh, UFOs first came on the world scene uh, at, at a crucial point in our own uh, history, uh, post World War II, uh, when we were allied with the Soviets. But we started to get uh, these inklings uh, before the war ended uh, that they were really not our friends, and uh, later confirmed uh, through folks that had defected and through intercepts we had of their communication that they really had infiltrated every aspect of our government, uh, from the State Department to the White House to the OSF. Um, there were some serious concern, and this is, you know, this led into the Red Scare of the 50s, uh, that, you know, we were being infiltrated from within. And, and how, how, to, how to be able to, how could you flush these, uh, these hidden agents out? And so, again, I think this is one of the beliefs I have that uh, perhaps this uh, early government deception operation that used UFOs uh, may have may have been purposely um, put into place to try to uh, to get these uh, these inside agents to, to take the bait and, and to flush them out. You know, it's interesting you say that because the guy that was running, as far as I understand, the whole operation against Paul Benowitz and that whole scenario involving. Uh, Richard Doty and uh, Ernest Edwards and all those people from OSI and some other agencies. He was a the the people that uh, what pe the person that everybody calls Falcon. He was uh, OSS operative, and he had been dealing with the Soviets since right after the war. He worked with Reinhard Galen, etc. He was apparently brought out of retirement to once again flush out Soviet moles in the early 1980s during the Reagan era. So it's so it's. Yeah, so it's interesting to me that you say that that you bring this up, which I people I've talked to people about and I've thought about long term. Uh, the UFO subject is very useful, and as you said in your paper, uh, implied and actually said, 
the motivation for, for this information coming out may be completely different than what people would hope or think it was. And it's something completely mundane like uh, flushing out uh, moles and not revealing some sort of secret UFO information to the public. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's a hypothesis and it's definitely worth, worthy of research. Uh, I've, I've been spending an enormous amount of time uh, just trying to figure out if, if this government deception operation was put into place in, in early, uh, you know, from, from late 46 and early 47, what specific agencies of the government would have been involved in that. And, and there was a lot of upheaval and a lot of, uh, a lot of change in, in organizations uh, right after the war. And if you look at 47 itself, and we have the unification of the armed forces, we have the founding of the, the U.S. Air Force, uh, but there's, but interestingly enough, uh, it was the uh, Central Intelligence Group, the, the, the precursor to the CIA, uh, that was in place early enough to have have been the the agency that could have pushed this uh, deception operation. And oddly enough, the person in charge at that time was Hoyt Vandenberg, who later became, uh, um, you know, the guy who rejected the the estimate of the situation. So it's, there's the usual suspects. There's a whole range of characters that. Uh, it, it, that requ- but it requires a lot of research, you know, and, and, and you know, because of, of all the changes in government, and, and there's bi- biographies that have to be read, and, and, and archives that have to be looked at. Um, I spent a week at the uh, Truman Library uh, last month, just uh, going through and, and trying to trying to look at, uh, you know, recently declassified documents to figure out if there was any other clues that I could pick up. So, yeah, it, it takes just a tremendous amount of research and, and, and some sort of cohesive uh, uh, plan to, to try to get at this. Yeah, well, and it also takes an analytical mind like yours and a few other people working on this to be able to recognize a pattern or something across, you know, sometimes decades. And uh, I've not really ever heard of anybody saying, well, let's go back and look how far back this involvement goes what the nature of it was, and and perhaps what was uh, what they were trying to accomplish, and then on top of all that is you know what's behind that mystery that uh, might have gotten the interest of uh, somebody in a position to to possibly know you know to find out what it was way back when all the way up to the present. After reading your paper, I just thought you know nobody has really they've talked about it, but nobody's really actually gone and done the work with that idea in mind. Absolutely, and I think I think that there are some of the folks that I've come across uh, in this field that I recognize having the skills to to do that. We really need to sort of get together and, and form a core group that uh, seriously looks at that. You know, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the training I received in the military uh, in signals intelligence because it's exactly that. It's taking an enormous volume of information and, and trying to pinpoint what the real elements of truth are. So I know there are, there are a number of folks in this field that uh, are like-minded, and it just there needs to be just some structure for them to, to employ their skills to uh, toward that research. And it might be interesting to go about it in the way that an intelligence operation has gone about, with basically not saying anything about it for months or years until you get to the point where, because even after you think you're finished, more information keeps coming in. Absolutely. Yeah, there's 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 no end to the amount of information that has to be looked at. So it um and and, and I think that um you know, it, it it that each person has to work their own angle. I mean there are folks that they're interested in the ETH hypothesis and those are interested in induction research. Um and and this is just another angle. It doesn't debunk or it doesn't uh take away from those other research efforts. 
It just somebody has to be able to uh, sit down and, and do the job because it hasn't been done. It's actually good that there's not a um, specific philosophy for MUFON, like we are going to prove the ETH, which is what I, that, that's what I thought was the philosophy of MUFON for many years. And it seems like that's changing, which is exciting and great to be able to say, well, let's look at it from these 10 different angles and uh, see if any of them bear fruit. Has, has anything happened like that yet? I mean, to the point where you can make some sort of uh, an announcement or something that's in, that would be interesting in a public forum? You know, I, I would love to say yes, but, but no. We, we haven't uh, come to those uh, any sort of definitive conclusions. It's, it's, it's one of the interesting uh, things about this phenomena. And, and, but at the same time, you know, I, I've looked at this and racked my brains of trying to figure out how to get to the truth. And, and to be honest, uh, I would like to have uh, an answer in my lifetime. So the one, what, what, what I started doing was start looking at the, the, uh, the origins of this and trying to figure out, you know, what, what can I actively do that will help to get to that truth. And, and, I, and again, it goes back to something earlier I said, and, and to be honest about it, we have got to eliminate the government wild card in this. We will not get to that truth unless we do that first. So that's that's really what has, has sort of propelled my own research into this. Well, how do you think you could eliminate it by exposing what the history is and explaining to people uh, what the motivation for that history was, and that possibly there's no answer there, but you know that 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 it's probably more of a distraction than anything else. Well, it, it could be it could be uh, a combination of. Um, all right, we've had a good thing going for this long, but the game's up, and, and maybe it's time we disclose, and it's not the disclosure most people think it is. Uh, you know, maybe it's the disclosure that, yes, we have been using this for our own benefit for the last 60 years, and it started back at this point in time, um, and that doesn't uh, take away from the fact that there's a real phenomenon out there, uh, but it's time for us to disinvest ourselves in this field and uh, think of other ways to, uh, uh, to, to uh, reach our goals. It's exactly what I've thought for quite a long time now. The, the disclosure is the fact that there's not really anything known about the origin, purpose, or uh, how to control what the phenomenon is, but that there's a lot of ways to use it, as you've said and you've found and other people have found, to use it as a, as a, as a tool of um, intelligence and uh, political gain and power, etc., Exactly. If we can't, exactly. It, it, it could, it could simply be if we can't exploit it outright because we can't control it. We we can exploit it in a different way for our own purposes, and and, and uh, which is one of the things I bring up in my paper that uh, even if this is an early an early deception, uh, you know, even back in early '47, it doesn't take away from the fact that maybe some of the uh, the objects seen in '47 were were real unidentified objects. It's just they were exploited for for a different purpose. Some of the stuff, friends of my, you know, Nick Redfern, um, uh, uh, Mac Tonys, and Paul Kimball on online uh, have written about, has has been kind of along the same lines that um, all UFO sightings are due to military projects and it's all a disinformation campaign. And you know, I don't think that that uh, you and and um, other people I know trying to say that at all. What it what there's what what's trying to be said is. Let's take a look at what some of the false leads are so that we can ignore them in the future and concentrate on what might be more fruitful in answering this question. Would, would you agree with that? No, absolutely. And we, we, need, we, we need to be able to um, 
uh, look at this, this vast body of data and be able to eliminate the noise and, and, get, and, and so we can spend our time uh, looking at the data that's really part of the phenomenon, not, not something that may have been induced. Do you have a any kind of favorite answer or theory, or are you just kind of up in the air until something starts to stick? You know, I, I really don't, uh, just because the, the more the more I've uh, been exposed to this phenomena, uh, the more I realize how um, how wide the spectrum is and how some of it borders on the spiritual and some of it borders on the paranormal, and some of it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, why <laughs> why would somebody witness a physical craft one day and the next day have poltergeist activity in her house? Right. I mean, it just it's just uh, it's mind boggling to to uh, to try to to categorize uh, those different experiences that obviously are related. Um, so no, I, I don't have a, a favorite hypothesis. Uh, I just have a favorite avenue of research, <laughs> and, and right now that's uh, that's that's what the government uh, is involved in. Considering that, do you think it'd be valuable in uh, reporting UFOs to uh, look at a subjective angle? In, in other words, how it made the person feel or how it, how it affected their life, having a sighting or encounter or whatever you want to call it. Do you, do you think that would be something was, that would be valuable as a research tool? I, I think it's very valuable because it, a lot of it goes back to uh, to the to the human experience and and uh, you know I, I think back for example to a lot of the uh, stories that uh, that Pisa told about. Um, you know, being you know, taken on board a craft and shown and shown a vision of their future and, and the apocalypse and and uh, you know you wonder okay were they shown this because this is something that's going to come true or were they shown this because uh, th- there was a, a human emotion that was they were trying to induce and um, you know what is is it is it is it about the human experience you know and, and so it is important. That uh, we just don't look at just the physical and, and the trace evidence, but also look at it from the from the psychological point of view. If you had to put in one sentence what you think MUFON should be doing or what the mission is, what would you think it would be? Um, I, I think it would be uh, you know stick to um, our scientific principles and uh, to study the the phenomena uh, from a pure science point of view. And, and science being very broad, and not just the physical hard science, but the social sciences, the um, you know psychology, etc. Uh huh. You know who Richard Strassman is? Richard Strassman, that rings a bell. He wrote a book called um, DMT: The Spirit Molecule. Yes, yes, actually, I do know. Uh, I've, I've read a portion of that book. I uh, when I first read that book, I thought this is the most important abduction book that has nothing to do with abductions that's come out in the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And I saw him uh, last year. Uh, I just ran into him at a publisher's convention, and he told me that he, there's a cath- uh, chapter of MUFON in Northern California that's looking into the DMT angle on uh, abductions. Do you know anything about that? Actually, that's right. Uh, now that, that uh, I remember his name, uh, he's actually Richard's actually part of one of the members of our abduction research team. Uh, we have two research teams that are going right now. We have a history team that um, uh, Robert Powell and, and Mike Swords and, and Jan Aldrich and a number of other folks are working on the, the basically the book that documents the early history of UFOs. 
and our second team is the abduction team who who are working that uh, that other angle, and, and Richard is actually part of that. That completely amazed me that an organization like MUFON would even be involved getting near something as, as, as controversial to most people as a psychedelic substance that um, is, is actually is illegal and that, uh, the, how that might impinge upon what people say is the abduction phenomenon because if people don't know, what Strassman did was administer DMT as part of a, uh, an approved study in the 1990s and a significant portion, something like 40% of the people that were under the influence of this, um, this compound described essentially what were abduction experiences. And all they were doing was lying there in a hospital room with a couple people standing there talking to them and recording their uh, impressions. Why would MUFON think that was important? It would, it would seem like the first way to drive a lot of people away from the, uh, away from the organization. Well, I, but again, I think this goes back to our discussion, which is, do you, do you want to know the truth, or, or do you want to stay in the mystery? And, and there are a lot of folks who's, who, who love the mystery, and, and to them, the truth is not important. Uh, but it's my, been my goal uh, since coming here to make sure that the truth is paramount, and whatever the truth may be, that in the way it falls out, that that be revealed. So if, if it takes studies like that to, to get to the truth, they're worth pursuing. This is why I wanted James on the show. It makes me so happy that there's open minds that are in, on a, in a national level on a, in a big organization like MUFON that consider looking at this kind of thing. Because when the book first came out, uh, mainstream ufology was scared at it and laughed about it. And it's uh, so heartening to see that somebody will take it seriously and we will pursue it no matter where it might lead and not, not be afraid of a political implication or a, a scientific implication or a philosophical implication, whatever. What, what's important is, is to pursue the uh, data and the phenomenon where, where it might lead. And um, that's why, I was, you know, when I first heard you were coming on at MUFON, that's what made me excited. And this is, this is even more heartening. You know, you know, Greg, my, my favorite saying these days is, in ufology, there are no sacred cows. You know, the bottom line is, no matter what we, what we have learned or we have researched in the past, uh, that there's always, uh, there's always other possibilities, there's always other avenues of research, and we do need to bring people on board uh, from the scientific community and from the younger generations to get interested in this subject from whatever angle they want to pursue it. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there are, uh, there's nothing that we hold sacred in ufology that, that, uh, that can't be touched. We have to touch it all because we don't have answers. Yeah, well, I, I, once again, I'm amazed to hear somebody running MUFON say something like that because I, I haven't heard it from any other organization. And the fact that, you know, the, that MUFON is now basically bravely multi, multidisciplinary is, uh, bodes well for the future. You, you said this about young people. There haven't been any any. There hasn't been anybody basically below the age of forty or thirty coming into the ufological ranks in the last maybe what fifteen twenty years or more. Uh, do you notice that this is changing um, because of MUFON or for any other reason? Well, I, we're getting a lot of, of younger members for sure. That's for sure. And and those younger members, you know, through the years, are going to learn more about the phenomena. And then when they get to the point where they're willing to invest. Uh, the time that is necessary to uh, to do this type of research, they will. They'll, they'll take over. I mean, it's, I think it's a given. And um, uh, so, yeah, we are recruiting younger members. We are getting new members in. 
And again, I think it's just a matter of time before um, they take this research and, and they take a new height. Uh, my wife just said something about uh, cable TV shows. You were involved in, uh, what's the name of the show? I can't remember now. Uh, it was the Discovery Channel's UFOs Over Earth. That's right. Which is, it's it's uh, not being produced anymore, is it? Yeah, we did we did three uh, shows. It was a mini-series for them. Uh, oh, okay. Though there's, there may be another show in the works, not with Discovery, but uh, with another channel. Well, I hope um, so. What is it? And, what, and, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask uh, what your experience was. I learned a lot from those was. shows. One is that uh, UFO investigation is not conducive to having a TV crew follow you around. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, when the, when the production takes control over the investigation, uh, things don't go the way you, you expect them. So uh, we're actually in negotiation with another company who wants to follow us around on some of our star team investigations that we're doing for uh, Big Little Aerospace. And uh, we've already told them straight up, uh, you guys are not in control. You won't be in control of this if you do. You're going to be along for the ride, because the investigation is uh, is what's going to drive us. And uh, as a true documentary team, uh, you'll be documenting that. But um, we need to make sure that that we do our investigations first, and and the TV comes second. That's a good idea, but you also have to have somebody there when they're doing the editing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I would agree with that. I'd absolutely agree with that. I don't know if you will get it. It'd be nice to have some sort of input in Final Cut before it actually into the Final Cut before it actually gets aired. And I hope you can get right. that. Right, right. I would agree. Absolutely agree. Okay, it's and, uh, it may not be of an entertainment value. I mean, we don't know. Like we talked about earlier, it's uh, uh, UFO research is is not all that glamorous. It's it's hard work. Yeah, well, and it's not that entertaining. What it is, the entertainment is in, in the in the long view, not in not in a half an hour or an hour on a television show. Exactly. But the point is to get you know, if you can get some kind of garbled message out there by your efforts, that uh, somebody who does have a serious interest is willing to put in the time and is an intelligent person with a discerning mind will see that, and um, you know, it, it's basically advertising. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it would be great advertisement, but but it's not like ghost hunting. I mean, you just can't just go to an old. You can go to an old house and that creaks and moans, and and all of a sudden you have a ghost show because uh, you know it's scary. Uh, it, this, I mean, the UFO research and investigation is, is completely different. No, it's not often very scary. Although I guess occasionally it can be, but uh, right. you can never control that. Yeah, it's it's not really conducive to uh, TV, and you you it, it's not. They don't hang around. I mean, I guess if, if, unless there's a flap and you're, you're lucky to be there at the right time, which is, as far as I know, not too many or any TV shows have been able to do. Exactly. Uh, we're up at the top of the hour, uh, which means that I will have to make room for the other show. Maybe you can give people a little idea if they want to get involved, where to go, who to talk to, and uh, also where you will be appearing in the next uh, few months. Well, for information on MUFON, you can go to our website at www.mufon.com, M-U-F-O-N.com. Uh, if you want to get involved, I, I, I would recommend that you not only join the organization, but also join our investigator ranks. Uh, we have a certification process. We have an investigator's manual that uh, teaches you A through Z how to conduct an investigation. That, that's where most of our folks start. Uh, if you're a hardcore researcher, um, you can contact me directly, especially if you're in the scientific community. Uh, you can reach me at HQ as in headquarters at MUFON.com. 
uh, and I will be in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, first week of July, doing a lecture there as part of the conference. The reason I started this show and the reason I started my magazine a long time ago was to be able to talk to people directly about things that I cared about and to be able to spread information like you have out, uh, out to people. But basically it was a very selfish <laughs> endeavor. And I thank you so much for coming on and spending these two hours with me. And I hope to see you uh, again soon sometime at one of these conferences and talk to you uh, quite a bit in the future. So I appreciate the opportunity, Greg, and, and uh, anything I have to see at the uh, Crash Retrieval Conference this year. All right. Thanks so much, All James. Right. All right. Have a great night. Thank you. You, you too. Talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow, James Carrion is uh, running MUFON in the way that uh, that uh, uh, a bunch of people listening to this show would like it to be run. At least that's what it sounds like on this program. So uh, there, there's hope for the future yet, and that's why I wanted to have James on, who's, who was uh, gracious to come on and be uh, be patient with me. Check out MUFON if you've got something to contribute and help them out. I think it's, you know, it, five years ago or ten years ago, I would not have said this, but uh, at this point I'm saying uh, I, I've changed my mind. And um, with uh, that kind of leadership, I think it's a good idea to get involved and possibly Contribute what you can, unless you're a maverick, and then you can go ahead and do what you want, which is also fun. See you next week. Keep in touch. Read uh, read Mystic. Go to the MUFON uh, website and check them out, and we'll talk to you soon. Now she dances with his skeleton.